Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapter 8. And today we are reading verses 18 through 25. And again, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. As we concluded last week, you may have felt that the final phrase of the final verse was neglected to a certain degree, and you would be right. Verse 17 declared, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now that last phrase is likely to cause a certain amount of consternation, particularly for newer believers who may have thought that when they surrendered to Christ that it meant life would be smooth sailing from now on. There are prosperity gospel types that will espouse such ideas. And if that was your impression, I trust that by now you have been disabused of that pie-in-the-sky type of theology. Any minister or evangelist who seeks to attract people to Christ with such deceptive promises is not worth listening to, for they do not know their scriptures. Jesus never promised such things to his disciples. To the contrary, he told them, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now that was not only a word of warning to the first disciples, but it was a truth that would apply to all disciples. For the simple fact that when the Spirit of God regenerates believers to eternal life, their citizenship changes. They go from being of this world to being of the kingdom of God. That change of address generates animosity from the world 
to one degree or another. Now, we do not know at the time of Paul's writing this letter whether he had in mind any specific suffering that these saints in Rome may have been undergoing. But his point is that we should not be surprised at our suffering, nor discouraged by it. For it is a way in which our communal connection with Christ can be experienced. 2 Corinthians 1.5 says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Philippians 3.10 says, That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Colossians 1.24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. And these are just a few examples of Paul's perspective on suffering and how it is that through suffering we come to know Christ at a deeper level than if we were untouched by such trial and tribulation. Now Paul is not thinking only of suffering brought on by a kind of religious persecution. It certainly includes that, but it is broader than that. He's thinking of suffering of all types that has been brought about because of our sin in Adam. The world which God created was very good. But once we rebelled against God's sovereign rule, we came under the curse of death. And our sin also resulted in the world being subjected to a kind of futility or fruitlessness that Paul describes as a bondage to corruption. So whenever people want to blame the ills of this world on God, they're partially right, for God's the one who subjected creation to this futility. But it was because of our rebellion in Adam that he did so. The troubles and sufferings in this world were never part of God's design. God did not create a broken system. That's on us. It is because of our sin that Solomon cries out, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Therefore, when we find ourselves suffering from a host of possibilities, a worldwide pandemic, global economic collapse, Wars and rumors of wars, relational struggles, emotional distress, whatever it might be, we have only to look in the mirror to find the cause behind it all. And Christians are not immune. Christians are not immune to these things. High interest rates fall upon the just and the unjust. COVID infects people of every tribe and nation and tongue. Violent crimes happen to Christians as well as to unbelievers. Grief affects Christians as well as non-Christians. Tooth decay happens to Christians like just like everyone else. The world in which we live suffers all these things because of our sin. But never lose sight of the fact that it was into this sinful, fallen cesspool that the Lord of life came as our Redeemer. 
which magnifies His atoning work, for it speaks of the depth of His grace and the breadth of His holiness and the height of His love, that He would leave the blessed perfection of His heavenly home to seek us out and rescue us from our sin and its power. And it is because He did that that our perspective on these things is different. Most people would probably attest to the fact that suffering is a heavy thing. Chronic, long-term health issues are wearying. They weigh us down physically as well as mentally and emotionally. They can be a drag on our financial well-being and can cause us no small amount of anxiety as we carry this burden. And we could say this about almost any type of suffering. Listen to those who have been displaced from their homes because of war or because of flooding or because of wildfires. It does not take long before you hear the weariness in the voices of those who have lost loved ones because of that, as well as all their possessions and their sense of place and security and on and on. It is a heavy, heavy thing. But for those who are in Christ, while they too have had to endure much suffering, there is often a different perspective buried within their thinking about their suffering. And it is a perspective that is reflective of what Paul says here. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. While Christians are not immune to suffering, they have an advantage that unbelievers do not. They have the presence of God's own Spirit abiding within them, comforting them, embracing them, sustaining them, persuading them that their suffering is not for their punishment or their destruction. It is for their spiritual benefit. As we will hear next week, for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. Even things we would deem to be negative. All things, even suffering. And so as heavy as suffering can be, it is never more weighty than the power that resides within us. So whenever we are tempted to say, I just don't think I can go on, we need to realize that the Lord disagrees because He lives within us. When Paul says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, he is not saying that he's the world's strongest man capable of lifting elephants with one hand. He's saying that the Spirit of Christ is sustaining him through all the trials and tribulations of this life in this fallen world, which explains how Paul endured all the beatings and shipwrecks and prison cells and health challenges and difficulties he personally had to endure. But the other shift in perspective that Christians have that the world does not is the thought of what lies ahead. Paul's affirmation here is that the heaviness of our suffering is not worthy of compare 
to the weightiness of the glory that is to be revealed to us, or as some translations have it, in us. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. It is a word that denotes gravitas or weightiness. There is a a substance, a mass that is characteristic of it. So gold was of a higher glory than wood because of its brilliance and weight. And a king would have had a greater glory than a tanner because of his power and position. But there was no greater glory than that glory associated with God. When it was displayed atop Mount Sinai, or later when it filled the tabernacle, and then later still the Holy of Holies in the temple. God's holy glory caused Isaiah to cry out in penitence, so fearful was he of being consumed by it. The prophet prophet Habakkuk declares that a day is coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so Paul is declaring that the heaviness of the suffering that is associated with this present age is not worth comparing with the weightiness of the glory that is to be revealed, either to us or in us, or perhaps both. Most all of us have, at one time or another, I would suppose, experienced the annoying pain of a paper cut. They are sore and bothersome, and because of their location, more than likely on the tip of a finger, we're frequently made aware that they are there. But my guess would be that whatever suffering might be associated with that paper cut would immediately fade from our minds should it be replaced with the exhilaration of, say, skydiving. My guess would be that while free-falling from 15,000 feet, plunging towards the earth at around 120 miles an hour, that your paper cut would not even enter your mind. And Paul is saying that the suffering of this present age, which is it's extremely onerous for many people, will be like that paper cut when the glory of the Lord envelops us or overwhelms us, consumes us in the age to come. And when the truth of that future glory takes firm root in our minds, it transforms our attitude when we find ourselves amid trial and tribulation. When we begin to see that the glory that is to be revealed to us is so great that it will cause our present suffering to be eclipsed into nothing, it makes battles with health issues bearable. It puts the death of loved ones in perspective. It sustains us amid religious persecution. It removes the anxiety of financial trials because we know that in all these things, The one who died for us still holds us firmly in the palm of his hand and he is sovereign over all these things and is actually preparing us for this future glory. You may remember that when the Lord examined Adam and Eve in the aftermath of their disobedience, that God said to Adam that the work that God had given him to do was going to become much more difficult 
The fruitfulness of the earth was changed due to Adam's sin. And God said to him, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now this is what Paul is referring to when he speaks of the creation being subjected to futility. And then he begins to speak about the creation in anthropomorphic terms, treating it as though it is a conscious living entity that is groaning with birth pangs, longing for the moment when it will all be over when the sons of God are revealed. Now, Paul is not teaching some mythological understanding of the earth here. He is simply using metaphoric language to make a point. That the fall had consequences beyond the sentence of death for Adam and Eve. The fall resulted in the corruption, the spoilage, of the created order, which compounded life for Adam and his progeny with a kind of pointlessness or futility that would plague every succeeding generation. And Paul seeks to make this point by speaking of the creation groaning over its present state. But he immediately transitions from the groaning of the creation to our own groaning. Now anyone over the age of 50 who slowly climbed out of bed this morning with grunts and groans probably does not require any explanation on this. So let me just say this to those of you under 50. It is about to get worse for you, okay? But I'm wondering if any of us really understand why it is that we groan. The word that Paul uses here is a very common word in the Greek, and its root means to sigh deeply. And we sometimes do this, do we not? We plop down in a chair and we go, <sighs> there is this exhalation of breath that communicates to anyone in the room who might care that we're whipped. We are tired, we are weak, we are worn, at which point we're tempted to start singing the rest of the song, through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light, take my, pressure, my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. But you see, that's the thing. The reason why we sigh the reason we groan is that this all goes against our nature. We were not created like this. We were created to be different. But when we fell into sin, that original purpose was sabotaged. The reason we sigh is because we innately know this. Listen to this quote by Schneider in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. He says this, Sighing takes place 
by reason of a condition of oppression under which man suffers and from which he longs to be free because it is not in accord with his nature, expectations, or hopes. This is why Paul writes to the Corinthians, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. There is something about our groaning that is prophetic. It is looking forward to the day when we will be set free from this corruption and our bodies will be fully redeemed. And we know that this will happen because God has given us His Spirit as a guarantee. What did we read last week? The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. This is what we long for. This is what we hope for. Our glorification. And we have been given a taste of this redemption by the justification that we have experienced by God's grace through faith in Christ, the gift of God's Spirit who is wooing us into ever-deepening fellowship with the Father, is engaged in applying the atoning work of Christ to us, transforming us more and more into the image of the Son, empowering our sanctification and helping us in the mortification of the flesh. And what does this do? It strengthens the hope we have in these things. By virtue of the Spirit's presence in us, bearing witness with our spirit, we begin to trust the promises of God even more. The initial doubts we may have had when we first believed begin to evaporate as they are replaced with further testimony from the Spirit that God's promises are sure and all that Christ has proclaimed will come to be. And so Paul writes similarly to the Corinthians, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, But the things that are unseen are eternal. Now I know that if you are suffering at this moment, this may be hard to hear. It may be that the pain of every day is such that you just do not know how you can go one more mile, one more hour, one more step, even one more minute. 
But if you are in Christ, then you need to know that Christ is also in you. His Spirit abides in you. And He is engaged in a work in you that is transforming you to bear the weight of glory. What awaits every person who is in Christ is an eternity filled with wonders beyond our expectations. So God must be busy with this spiritual reformation in us. And we must be busy with it as well. Putting to death the deeds of the body as we talked about last week. And in that busyness, we must also begin to change our focus looking not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If in our regeneration, our address changed, if our location changed from this realm to the heavenly realm, then our attention needs to be refocused on that realm and on that sovereign and on His purposes and on His mission For as we have just read, the things of this earthly realm are transient and the things of God's kingdom are eternal. And when we engage in that refocus, when we walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh, it transforms our thinking about all the things that are associated with this sinful world, including our suffering and all of our trials and tribulations. Beloved, God is preparing us for glory and He is preparing glory for us to see Him in the fullness of His glory but also for a glory that He will impart to all those whose robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Let us not be discouraged by our trials but let us take heart knowing that our salvation is sure because we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me that we might pray together for a moment.